I'm standing at the corner of Asylum and Main Street. It's the center of Hartford, Connecticut, a city of about 130,000, with a metro population of over a million. It's a Friday evening in 2019. The only sounds you can hear come from the cars rushing by. They have plenty of space to exceed the speed limit on open roads. An empty Burger King with a broken window stands across the street from the old state house, a building that dates back to the 18th century. There is no one around to stop and take a look at the National Historic Landmark. Down the road there are two skyscrapers, one made almost entirely out of concrete, and the other is covered in windows with an unfashionable copper tint. No one walks in or out. No businesses are open. Further down Main Street sits a cemetery that dates back to the early 1600s. It's about as lively as anything else downtown. This is the heart of a city that serves around a million people. And yet on a Friday night before coronavirus was a word in anyone's vocabulary, there's very little to see, and this is all you can hear. The generally accepted diagnosis is that Hartford is a failed city. I was born in Hartford, and I've lived in and around it pretty much my entire life. And I've always been fascinated by this quote-unquote failure of a city and how it happened. Perhaps it's something I think about a lot because I know that it wasn't always this way. Once upon a time, this was a hub of business and culture. Hartford was central in the American Revolution and later the abolitionist movement. It's a small city that's played a remarkable role in the foundation of this country's identity and culture, home to the nation's oldest newspaper and museum, as well as a slew of influential writers and thinkers. A business hub from its start, Hartford gained a reputation as a manufacturing giant and earned the title wealthiest city in the nation, influencing a population boom during the Industrial Revolution. So how did it go from that to what it is now? unwanted, and untouchable. It may be possible that this is all caused by an infrastructure project in the 1960s, one that was supposed to propel Hartford into the future, but instead doomed it to ruin and obscurity. I made this podcast because I wanted to see if this is the case, if the construction of a single road destroyed Hartford, and if so, how can we bring it back? This is The Road That Killed a City, Episode 1. What did you do wrong with your life? I've found that one of the best ways to look at Hartford is through the lens of the people who moved here from elsewhere. Tony Cherilis is one of these people. He moved to Connecticut in the early 2000s after graduating from Florida State and getting a job at the engineering company Pratt & Whitney. Upon arriving in Connecticut for the first time, he went around looking for an apartment. The recommendation that the Human Resources made, it was 2001, was to live out by the Buckland Hills Mall in some kind of generic apartment buildings uh, that were springing up out there. 
He found it odd that his own company advised him to live in a building that was a 20-minute drive away from his office in East Hartford. Entirely inconvenient for anybody that might want to walk or ride, ride their bike to work, or, or even just have a, a short commute uh, that doesn't include the interstate. I just thought that was a stupid idea. Needless to say, the entire process perplexed Cherilus. I can imagine that that was the norm uh, being proposed to me by human resources who influences how each new hire decides where to live. New hires coming to a, a city to work have no idea where they're moving. The HR recommendation to move all new employees out of town struck him as problematic. We can say it. Uh, it's racist hmm. uh, in that East Hartford, like Hartford, is a is a more diverse uh, town than most of the surrounding towns. Additionally, Cherilus thinks this has further reaching negative effects for the town of East Hartford and the company itself. They're sort of disinvesting in the town, while at the same time oddly putting themselves at a disadvantage because if they're encouraging their large workforce to not even live in the town that the plant is in, that the headquarters is in, they're, they're reducing property values for those residential properties. It's both pulling uh, people out of the town and, and hurting themselves financially. Another person who experienced a bit of what we could call culture shock was Will Wilkins. He moved to Hartford in 1990. I was living in New York City quite happily and uh, I met a woman who lived here in Hartford and uh, fell in love with her. And I came here for that reason. And quite a few aspects of his new city struck him as odd. Frankly, the first thing that really struck me about Hartford was how segregated it is uh, racially. You had a situation where black people were here, Puerto Rican people were here, white people were here, and it was really separate, really apart, and that people, um, for the most part, didn't know each other. But Wilkins still wanted to live in an urban environment and somewhere close by to his job as director of Real Artways. So he moved into Hartford's West End. One of my introductions to Hartford was moving to town. People would say, where are you living? And I'd say, I'm living in Hartford. And they'd say, West Hartford? And I was like, what part of what I just said didn't you understand? You really you need to ask? No, Hartford. And just like Cherilus, Wilkins quickly caught on to the strange attitude of the locals. You know, that, that, that idea that if you were white, you were unlikely to live in Hartford really jumped out at me. Um, and that, you know, that, the, the, that prejudice against Hartford is something that I felt from the very beginning. In Hartford, there are places where white people live and places they don't. And for the people that come to the city and, knowingly or not, break that divide, they all have the same conversation with the people who have been here their whole lives. Mary Cockrum is one of those people. When she moved to Hartford, she settled in the Frog Hollow neighborhood, a place known for its high Latin American population. Because I don't usually say I live in Frog Hollow, I say I live in Hartford. Mm -hmm. And they're like, the West End, and I'm like, no, I live in Frog Hollow, I live a couple of blocks from the Capitol. And they, they kind of go, oh. Carrie Provost runs the website Real Hartford and also works for the Connecticut Historical Society. She also lives in Frog Hollow. Usually what happens is the person goes, oh, do you live downtown? I go, no, I, I don't live downtown. I live in one of the neighborhoods. 
oh, you live in the West End. Nope. And they, so it's, it's a lot of um, assumptions that are based on how I present racially and yeah. where I would potentially live. When I started living in Hartford, when I would introduce myself to people, the response was usually like a look of horror on their face. Like, what did you do wrong with your life choices to land here? When I was growing up, trips into the city were rare, despite the fact that I only lived a couple of miles away. Living in the suburbs, the entire city was portrayed as a no-go zone. People only went downtown for work or a sports game, and you'd rarely hang around much before or after, and the surrounding neighborhoods are mostly still a mystery to me. They're places, I was always told, where crime is rampant and opportunity low. But I always hated this defeatist mindset Hartford suburban residents had about their own city. Perhaps it's because I always wanted to live in a big and important and fun and safe city. But also because I knew it wasn't always this way. Not too long ago, Hartford was a destination, a thriving and growing hub and its rolling hills were advertised on billboards across the nation. The city's image was so alluring, in fact, that it caught the attention of the most famous man of his generation. 